Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. So I'm joined today by Peter O'Sullivan, all the way from Perth. I'm sure you've heard him, seen him, been inspired by him and his luscious locks and awesome hair. So really keen to dive into some topics today that are really relevant for our practice today, especially during these times, the importance of communication skills is, is paramount to helping our patients. And yeah, keen to, to dive in. Pete, thank you so much for, for making the time. It's a pleasure. So I've always wanted to ask this question. Peter, what is your story? Mm, that's such an open question. I love questions like that because that's, that's my first question I ask any patient who comes into my room, which I think is a fabulous way to kind of open a conversation. Um, and they often go, well, which bit of my story are you looking for? <laughs> so when I reflect on that, I presume it's around my professional story, but nothing's really in isolation. So um, my story is I grew up in New Zealand in a small town and um, I left home. It's the youngest of six kids. So I had, a, I had um, uh, parents who were pretty positive in terms of not really paying too much attention to health issues. A mum had a lot of health concerns, but really didn't ever demonstrate them. Um, uh, and had a very positive view on health and life. So I think they probably were an undercurrent for me. My dad was a pretty optimistic kind of guy. Uh, so they were probably influential factors. I was youngest of six children. Um, so probably was a recipient of not too much focused attention. <laughs> I went to physio school. I was, I was into climbing trees and running around, falling off a bike, had various injuries as a kid, wasn't ever given any time off school for any health concern whatsoever. <laughs> um, so I never really had a sense of illness perceptions around health issues. Um, and then I went to physio school and it all kind of turned upside down. It was in Dunedin uh, and got introduced to a world of pathology and illness and um, postural correction and all this stuff that I kind of looked at, questioned, um, annoyed my lecturers about because I realised there was just such a complete lack of evidence that underpinned what I was learning. And I nearly dropped out of physiotherapy. And in fact, I applied for medical school before I finished because uh, I just thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> what am I, I'm learning a whole lot of stuff that's got no evidence and I just feel like a bit of a fraud. Um, I was encouraged to do a year uh, um, in practice before, so I deferred a year for medical school. Uh, and uh, I worked in... Um, in Christchurch and I was really fortunate to be mentored by a chap there who kind of took me under his wing, saw that I had a huge hunger to learn and was very questioning and he really nurtured that and mentored it. Uh, got me a job working at a, um, a private clinic with a chap who was um, a very skilled manual therapist but was also very interested in um, exercise and rehab. Probably prior to that, I'd done some work in neuro rehab as well. 
people who had had strokes and um, neurological disorders. And I really loved that kind of working with someone to try and empower them to get back to their health. Um, and then I kind of morphed into the pain space and he was someone who had an interest in chronic pain. Um, so that kind of captured me, I suppose. And I saw, I think I saw a glimmer of something that physiotherapy could be that stoked my interest. Um, I went to every workshop I could access, um, and realized that after a couple of years, I, I had to do something different. I felt like I could, I could crack any joint in the body. I could push and poke and very frustrated that I was a jack of all trades and a master of nothing. I was treating symptoms without really understanding what was going on with my patients. And that was deeply dissatisfying for me. So um, there was a chap called Mark Steptoe who I bumped into um, and he had done his master's and PhD in Perth at Curtin Uni under um, Lance Toomey, uh, who was a very well-known uh, anatomist um, and physiotherapist. And he encouraged me to go to Perth to do postgraduate training in manipulative therapy, <laughs> of all things. Um, but I was incredibly fortunate to do that under Bob Elvey, who um, some of your listeners may not know of, but he is an extraordinary man who really developed the whole um, area in terms of um, understanding neural sensitization and particularly around the upper limb. And uh, he was a chap who was very widely read, a fabulous communicator, amazing clinician, and he really fostered me again. So I've just had, I suppose I've had this story of being mentored by different people uh, and he then invited me to um, teach at the university and work with him uh, and then encouraged me to get into further I wanted to do research I, I again I kind of came out of my postgraduate year thinking uh, I was working in a pain clinic with highly disabled people and at a private practice with minimally disabled people my tools of manual therapy and manipulation worked well for people with stiff joints who didn't really have any disability, who had aches and pains. They were completely redundant with these people who are highly disabled. And I realized that this toolkit that I'd learned was really not very useful for disabled human beings. <laughs> it was really only useful for those with aches and pains who weren't particularly bothered. Um, and they weren't disabled, they were, just bothered by aches and pains. And so we could crack and crunch them and they'd be out the door with a smile. Uh, for these other patients, they, it would make them worse. We'd push on them, poke them, and they'd flare up and they'd be worse and their pain didn't present like what we saw in a private setting. And so I was kind of confronted with these patients and the fact that there was absolutely no evidence that physiotherapy had any benefit to help these people and then I was confronted by the tools that I had, which were predominantly structural, biomechanical, which didn't really fit um, with the presentation that these people had. Uh, and so it kind of fostered this um, intrigue, I suppose, which took me down a research route and understanding that all of my training up until this time had been around structure and biomechanics. That was my mindset. So. I kind of leapt into that space back in the, um, it was the early 90s, 
um, which was, you know, the whole muscle balance, seeing pain as a biomechanical fault in the spine, you know, pain related to instability. That was my whole world of understanding. And um, then and being immersed in that space within a research um, mind and with this huge evolution of pain biology that was kind of underpinning in the psychosocial influences that go with pain, um, I kind of was incredibly fortunate to be nurtured into thinking and reading and exploring to realize that most of the things that I believed in had absolutely no evidence base <laughs> at all. Uh, and coming out of my PhD was then this uh, journey of um, testing my beliefs, essentially, um, testing my clinical beliefs, testing my pain beliefs, testing my physiotherapy beliefs. And then from then, my career has really been an unraveling of those belief systems and then kind of reintegrating a way of understanding pain that I think gives a much broader understanding or accurate understanding as we understand it now of what um, a person's journey looks like and what the factors might be that underpin their process and what tools that we might or might not have to kind of help those people on a journey. Uh, and so I've had these parallel journeys of working in it as a clinical practitioner through my whole career where I've always worked essentially three sessions a week, predominantly with people with disabling pain of any variety of all ages, from highly disabled to, you know, people who are just tortured, but not that disabled by their pain. Um, and listening to those stories, I made a decision in um, 1996, I was going to completely change how I worked. I was going to spend an hour with new patients and half an hour with follow-up patients. I made a change then. And to me, that was a critical moment of having time to think, having time to listen, having time to explore, having time to play. Um, that enabled me to question, I think, in my clinical world, which I hadn't had time to do up until then because I had this time pressure of seeing people and responding and kind of treating symptoms, which is just, I hated something deep inside me <laughs> really reacted to it. Uh, and then as a, I am rambling, but you did ask me my story. So it's kind of, <laughs> and then through this, um, with this kind of process of reeling that I realizing that as a practitioner, I had tools that I could relieve people's pain, but fundamentally the greater challenge was to empower people to manage their own pain. And so uh, having those tools as a skilled manual therapist where I could passively provide pain relief and realizing that actually maybe that wasn't the best kind of care to deliver people because it kind of trapped them in the dependency on me, which I didn't, again, it didn't feel right for me. I wouldn't want to be dependent on another healthcare practitioner to go back and back and back for the same thing to give me pain relief. To me, that's like being a drug addict. I don't, I don't it doesn't feel good where to develop a model of care that coaches a person to be in control of their pain and not to depend on me just felt like such a better way of understanding good care. So that was probably the other massive shift for me as a trained manual therapist to actually um, use manual therapy less and less and less 
in my journey to realize that the really important things that give people control are the things that we don't do to them, but the things that maybe they discover themselves in the journey of learning and that we can be a facilitator of that learning and we can act as a coach to kind of help them understand what might be happening in their body and reinterpret it, to de-threaten it, to to, um, develop courage uh, and overcome fear and to do things they would never have dreamt of doing and to take these structures that look broken and busted on a scan and realize that actually they hold up to doing extraordinary things. I mean, that's kind of underpinned that whole process. And kind of parallel to that clinical journey was, has been this um, uh, amazing uh, um, team of people around me who have kind of um, helped me on that research journey who have got skills that I never would have around biostats and understanding, um, uh, you know, complex methodologies and, um, uh, you know, biomechanics and neurophys and pain psychology, et cetera. So all of those people who are part of my team network research side of things have enabled me as part of a team to ask clinical questions uh, and kind of that evolving process of testing a hypothesis where you think you know your answer, you find out it's got nothing to do with what you thought. You update your thinking, did you learn and grow? It's been that kind of those two parallel streams have looked really similar in a lot of ways of just change, of growing, of understanding. And I think I've been really fortunate to have people around me who are very honest to take a completely different position to me, to debate me, to question me, to argue with me, to um, pull me back into my corner where my beliefs have run wild. And um, that's been a really... um, And I think having people around me who've got shared values that the, you know, when we're, our interest is predominantly to reduce the suffering of people out there in our communities. And so if that's what your value and your drivers, then it doesn't matter where that journey takes you in a sense. So that's the fun part of it. So that's a really long winded <laughs> process of the journey, I suppose. Um, and, and I've learned in my own, um, experiences of being having various experiences of pain um, to learn that firsthand in my own body as well, which has been incredibly important to me as a healthcare practitioner and I think as a researcher to give me a much deeper empathy of to what it is to live with pain. What a journey from yeah. from the so what I a couple of points that I wanted to, to grab from, from your story was you, you change and you had the support and the mentors and the team to help facilitate that change over towards mm. what you deemed was what mattered most. So you had um, a lot of help to get to, to give you more tools or different kind of tools or new perspectives to deliver high value service, high value care. 
So it was a mm. it was a team effort. I think that's one of the the things that people totally yeah about. yeah and that supportive network. Yeah, so important. And a lot of physiotherapists ask me, you know, what do they do? Is it find people, find people you trust, find people who are honest, find people who are caring, who are kind, <laughs> and and who are skilled and who are prepared to um, be sharing and open with you. Because that's how you learn. They're kind of they're kind of like the vital ingredients for creating and supporting an ecosystem. I reckon. And one of the things that we we talk about a lot on Twitter on social media is kind of perhaps calling out or what not to do. Kind of the low value care. We see it in research. We we question and wonder why it's still being delivered. I think one of the things that would be really good to to get your opinion on is what is high value care and how what what are yeah. perhaps some of the barriers to to imp implementing that high value care that coaching aspect where we're diving into someone's story listening yeah. what are some of the barriers to that yeah i think um part of this depends on who we deliver care to um in that you know we have a health care system which is not equitable so we, I think we've got a lot of people seeking care who probably don't need it and a lot of people who don't seek care who need it or can't access care because, one, they don't have the funds, they don't have the insurance, they don't have the knowledge or the health literacy. They, they might, have the, might not have the opportunity because they live in a rural, remote area. There might be cultural barriers. There might be language barriers. So at the very basic level... I think as a health system, um, I think we often are delivering lots of care to the wrong people. Um, and so I think in a, as a private practitioner, you can start, you can have this view that actually everyone's amenable to manipulation because all you see is people who are amenable <laughs> to it. Everyone loved, all my patients love dry needling because that's who you get coming through your door. And really they'd probably be fine without it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So uh, I think the greater concern we have is to say, who's at greatest, who's at greatest need in our society and, and around pain. And, you know, that might be pain from back pain, neck pain, joint pain, arthritis, tenopathy, whatever. Um, we know chronic pain is a massive issue. Uh, we know it can be disabling. We know there are lots of people who have pain who never seek care. Never. They will never go and see someone because of a neck headache, neck pain, back pain, but others will seek a lot of care. And, and the problem with that is if you look at who seeks care, it's often people who are worried about their pain or don't know what it is or can't cope with it or, or they fear that it means there's something terrible going on. So they come to us for reassurance often to have an understanding of what's going on. And often we frighten them more by telling them all this stuff that's wrong with them and it's not evidence-based so in a sense we create it and we've created a health system that perpetuates ill health i think um by taking people who so it's almost like we've created a system a health system um, that's delivering care to people who maybe don't need a lot of care, but we don't have a health system to provide care who, to people who do need care. And 
you know, the irony of that is it's cheaper for an individual to get a knee replacement than it is to have um, a session or it's cheaper for someone to have a disc uh, fusion or a spinal fusion than it is to see a physiotherapist for a series of eight to 10 sessions over a period of three months that might coach them back to being in control of their health. Now, there's something fundamentally wrong with that, where the taxpayers are forking out, you know, between twenty and fifty thousand dollars, but for something that we know may or may not deliver significant benefits, but we don't um, provide care for someone who, at a very basic level, <laughs> to to deliver care that enables them to be in control of their health. And so take an example of NEOA, for example, where we know that the comorbidities of things like uh, obesity, depression, inactivity, weakness, avoidance, fear avoidance, behaviours, etc. A knee replacement doesn't deal with those stuff. It's like a band-aid. Now, at the very end stage of the disease, there may be an indication for it. But at the beginning and the, the process of going through that, the healthcare system's delivering this care to these people, which is expensive, often at risk, risky, that doesn't address all their other health concerns. And um, we know 30% of, up to well, 20% of people can be the same or worse from that surgery. And it's even worse for, say, spinal fusion. So what's high level or low value care is, um, you know, it's easy to just point the finger at surgery, Physiotherapy is part of that as well. Like we have, we foster short appointments where, um, you know, I had someone on Twitter said, oh, that's all very well for you. I have to see six people an hour to, um, to, to survive. Well, that's going to, you're going to be delivering low value care. It's like the system is forcing you to deliver low value care because you have no time to listen. You have no time to coach. You have to, no time to explore, to um, facilitate, to write out a plan. So the system is that the system drives low value care. It drives short appointments. It drives treating symptoms. It, it doesn't enable people to get to the root of something. And I often use the example of psychologists. You don't see a psychologist. Psychologists don't run six sessions an hour. They don't do that. Why? Because they know it doesn't work. Physiotherapists do. And unfortunately, a lot of medical doctors do as well, and they hate it too. So the system is, number one, is a failing of drive forcing us down a path, which I think is to treat symptoms, not causes, to um, create dependency because that's how we pay our bills rather than create independence and coaching people. That's number one. Two is I think we've trained physiotherapists to do it. So part of our whole training is looking at impairment. We teach people to you know, to assess stuff that we know we can't even do reliably that's got very limited validity around, you know, joint mobility and there'll be people thinking, hearing this and going, oh my God, this man you know, needs to retire. Um, uh, but it's true. I spent hours and hours and hours spending time assessing stuff that I just should never have wasted my time doing because it's not predictive of anything. Uh, and that's kind of been the cool thing about this um, recent, or well, I shouldn't say it's a cool thing, the coronavirus is a terrible thing for society, but, and it's, again, identified huge inequities where um, countries with massive health disparities, the people at the bottom end who can't, you know, who are in crowded situations are the worst recipients of 
healthcare and the greatest risk. Horrible. Um, but what it's done for us as a profession, I think, in a lot of countries is forced us to deliver our care through telehealth, which is in some ways wonderful because it's, it's placed a value on us, on, what we, on the relationship. It's placed a value on the communication. It's placed a value on the coaching. It's placed a value on us empowering people to be in control of their pain and to engage with life and to um, care for their health in a much broader way. So in a sense, it's taken a, a pandemic to force us to change how we behave. Um, I suspect in Australia it will be short-lived and it may not stick because you know you have to practice something for a long enough period to develop the confidence and our own self-efficacy often to deliver that level of care and if we're let off the hook and we can go back to you know pushing and poking and sticking needles in people we probably will because it's what we've done and it's what we're comfortable with and um it's what we think people expect from us so we might have missed an opportunity there and so one of the the importances I took from that was the, um, the environment, the, the systems that we have. So if, if, if you have a young clinician who is perhaps stuck in a, in a clinic environment where there is 20 minute appointments, what's some, mm. some words of advice that you would, you would give as, as difficult as it is for them to deliver that high value coaching and, and care? Oh, I think it's so difficult. Look, I think, I think honestly believe until we change the system, until we start treating based on time, not based on consult, we're going to be stuck. I honestly do. Like as a practitioner who's been doing this for, I don't know, when I graduate in 88, it's a long time. I couldn't work like that. Uh, look, we, you know, sprained ankles, you know, minor stuff. Yeah, you don't need a lot of time. And that's why I think one of the things that I'd encourage people, I do encourage people to do is to use screening tools. So, screen your patients while they come in. So we use the a short form Ouroboros screening tool for anyone who walks in our door. Very quickly, you can see it. it's not always foolproof, but um, usually very quickly you can go, yep, this is a low risk patient. We don't, I don't need to spend a lot of time on them. I, there's no justification spending an hour over medicalizing someone who doesn't need it. Right? So I think, at the, I think what practices should do is to use um, those screening tools. And what I encourage people to do is if they have someone who's clearly complex, who's rating you know, over 50 on an Ouroboros screening tool, and they may have had that problem for a period of time, to get permission on day one to just hear their story and get permission for, the, for day two to thoroughly examine them so that they can then on day three set them up with a plan. Because um, I think my experience is People who have had pain for a long period of time are fed up with being just not listened to, of not um, ha having their problems taken seriously, of being, um, uh, you know, questioned or, you know, uh, we know from overwhelmingly from the research literature that uh, people who are disabled and distressed with pain um, don't feel heard. So it would be very unusual if those people rock up to your rooms and they may not because they may have tried before and it didn't work, in which case they'd gone elsewhere. 
Um, but if they do and you screen those people immediately and then you go, look, it looks to me as if this has been a longstanding problem. Um, and it looks like it's really, and you can tell when they walk in your room, basically how they move, if they're really disabled. Um, are you okay for me to take some time um, to really get to the bottom of this? So I've got 20 minutes today. Are you happy for me to break these sessions up so I can, number one, have time to hear your story, number two, thoroughly examine you, and three, make a plan that sets you up for your journey? How does that sound? Now, if they say to you, look, mate, I really just want you to give me a rub today, then I'll be saying, have you had a rub before? Yep. And how much relief did it give you? And how long did it get you back to doing the stuff that you love? Did it give you strategies when you can't get in to, to do it yourself? So I'd be asking deeper because often people just have an expectation. You're a physio, you rub people. That's what you do rather than saying. Um, so it's almost like they ask what they expect rather than go, yes, well, I didn't know that was an option. It's almost like you go to McDonald's and they go, would you like sushi? <laughs> you go, what? I thought this was McDonald's. Um, I'd love sushi, but I didn't know you offered it. <laughs> yeah. All I thought on offer here was McDonald's. Um, and often I think that's what our patients come to us with, is that they have an expectation that that's what we always do, so we always do it. It may not be the best thing for them. And look, I have, um, I've had situations where I've said to someone, I really don't want to do it. I will if you want me to, but I would love to show you how to manage this yourself. So next time you are in control of this, very rarely do they say no. In fact, we did this um, the study uh, where we, you know, basically interviewed and examined about eighty people over a period of a year, part of this um, trial that we're running, and. Um, one of the things that we asked all of these people was what, what were your hopes or expectations from coming today? And the key themes that kept on popping up is I want to have a clear understanding of what's going on. I want to have tools. I want to have tools that I can use to get me back to living again. And, and I want someone to help me do it. They were the things that kept on coming up. Only one of those people out of the 80 asked for hands-on treatment. Only one. Now, I run workshops, well, I don't run a lot of workshops, but when I do, um, the thing I keep hearing is, oh, but my patients want it. That's what they want. That's what they ask for all the time. And look, it may be that we've just conditioned them to ask for French fries every time they come to see us because that's what they think we offer. But sushi's way better. <laughs> that's it. And expectations are, are malleable. We can go deeper than totally. just, just, you know, assuming, making assumptions and, and then looking at the time and realizing that we don't have much time. So it's a bit of a cycle there that people can get yeah. stuck in. And I, that's really Absolutely. great to, to see that those barriers are malleable and, and perhaps just yeah. our own perceptions and our own experiences yeah. and our, yeah. 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 And, and I kind of take the view, what would I want? I mean, I've had, you know, heaps of pain events in my life and, and I don't, I don't want to have passive treatment. It's just the thought of it. Like I don't have time for it. I don't, particularly enjoy it. Um, I wouldn't want to do, I wouldn't want it. So why would I give someone that I wouldn't want something, something that I wouldn't want myself. Now that's not to say I don't ever use manual therapy and, and, but I'm really careful who I use it with. 
Um, and sometimes I'll kind of give the person what they want, but really give them what they need at the same time. Um, although I do think there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of people who use the passive treatment as an excuse because they're not really confident to just ditch it and go with the real thing. It's an adjunct. It's an add on. I kind of use the analogy that it's like sprinkles on a cake and some cakes are better without them. It's not the cake. <laughs> That's it. So it's not the, the main part. Uh, I wanted to, no. <laughs> so that on that topic of, of manual therapy, wanted to ask on how you would use it in your practice and does it change yeah. when it comes to someone with say acute pain versus chronic or does it yeah. change they're an athlete, they're expecting it. So this is like a, you know, sports physiotherapy. Yeah. What, what's your take? Yeah. So, um, it's, I'm going to write a paper on this at some point because I have thought about it deeply personally, uh, and as a practitioner myself, um, and it's been particularly interesting over this coronavirus period. We, you know, we have elected not to touch people. Um, what, one of the things I've loved um, doing telehealth is to teach people to self-palpate, um, self-assess, you know, to feel tenderness, to feel tension, to feel stiffness, to feel um, hypersensitivity, uh, and to reflect on what that means. And it's been a really cool thing to... to allow get people to kind of explore their own bodies themselves and i think they've really appreciated that we we can you know that's that whole idea it's not just about the talking and i think the the thing that frustrates me is people go oh, you're you know you've ditched all your fundamental skills and all you do is try and talk people better actually we're probably more about doing than talking um uh so the doing the, the talking is really to develop a rapport um, develop trust, to understand the story, to understand the factors, to understand the barriers, the fears, the, the lack of confidence. The doing is where the real action happens, we think. And that's to take people back into the things that, that they're frightened of doing. And so this idea of acute versus chronic is kind of a bit mute in some ways. I think I would differentiate acute trauma to an acute flare-up, for example. So we know a lot of pain is an acute exacerbation of an underlying persistent disorder. That's not like an injury in my mind. That's just like a re-exacerbation, like a asthma attack. It's someone with chronic asthma um, so that you might have to acutely manage it. But acute manage, good acute management is, uh, in my mind, putting the person in charge quickly. And if I can do that without... There's particularly people um, who are really lacking self-efficacy, people who are um, depend have more of a passive dependence. They're the ones I'm least likely to want to give passive therapy to. The ones who I don't really mind giving passive therapies to would be people who are not that disabled, who rock in, they're self-paying, they're not on comp, um, and they just want to push in a poke and a crack. And I've got those skills. I can do that, but I'm really clear when I do it, this is not a long-term fix. This is a short-term, this will give you short-term pain relief. And the key thing is to manage this in the long run because you'll be back and I'll be doing the same thing. I'm not putting anything back in. That crack you feel is just some, you know, changing your system that gives you short-term relief and it makes you feel a little bit looser for a while, but it will come back. Um, 
So I'm very honest when I do this stuff that we don't, you know, tell people nonsense. Um, but I really have a problem because I get to review quite a few people who are very disabled. And what really distresses me is people who are dependent, uh, who are vulnerable, who are lacking self-efficacy, who become dependent on practitioners who keep treating and treating and treating and treating and treating, and they're not getting better and they're not getting more functional and their distress levels are high still. That really upsets me because I feel like it's completely unethical practice. Um, because the thing those people are crying out for is answers and um, uh, strategies that they can be in control of their health with, and they just don't know how to do it. So in that sense, um, hands-on passive therapies are an obstacle, and it's not just hands-on, it could be needling or whatever. They're obstacles to good care. They take up time. They distract people. They, they trick people into thinking they need it rather than having ways to control it themselves. So... Yeah, I do, I do use um, some manual therapy, but very carefully. Um, the other thing, I, I, you know, I, I, like, I think touch is a very powerful medium. We can't use it with telehealth, but um, touch can be reassuring. It can be educational. It can be facilitatory. It can be de-threatening. It can be caring. It can be compassionate. It can show empathy. So we have license to touch, and I use it all the time. Um, because I see that as part of my therapeutic armory, but I use it in a way as often as I can where it's not seen to be a treatment. It's seen to be a, a nurturing of something else. You still value and, and prioritize that self-efficacy for that person and you absolutely. do whatever you can to nurture that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to me, they are the key things. And I kind of see pain, and we're seeing this more in our research as well. Pain and disability don't always correlate that well together, partly correlated, but you can see someone who has pain who has high self-efficacy and they still go to work and they do everything and they live their life. You can see someone with the same level of pain who has no life. They're not working. They're not socializing. They're not doing anything. Um, and that's where pain really buggers people up. Uh, and they're the people, in my mind, that I'm interested in researching um, and helping and de developing ways of caring for people. And I think the other thing that goes with this is the importance of um, good integrated care with general practice and psychologists, because my skill set is limited. And, and the best care I think I've seen for the hardest patients is when the GP and the psychologist and the physios and ex-phys or whoever else is in that care team are all working on the same journey plan with similar, with the same shared goals. It's incredibly empowering for patients. The contrast is where there's fractured messaging that, and um, goals that go through that process. It's a disaster. Awesome. Uh, the the multidisciplinary team approach is also something that you, you touch on in, in cognitive functional therapy and you, you work yeah. on all these skills that perhaps yeah. we aren't delivered these skills in, in our initial training. And I know that you, no, you are <laughs> in the future de developing more training and programs and courses. For yeah. In, yeah. So um, one of the things we've been, you know, as researchers and we don't own a business and, well, we don't, we're not, we're not running an educational business. We've, we, 
as much as we can, we put everything that we develop in free to free access because we like the idea of um, sharing, I suppose, sharing knowledge we think should be shared. Um, one of the things we've been really careful to do is, um, is have sufficient understanding of um, what we're doing so that we're not selling something that hasn't got good efficacy or a good basis of knowledge. So I know there have been a lot of people calling for us to run workshops and do training and stuff, but we've been very deliberate around um, our research to actually, we kind of see if we're running an intervention, there are two interventions. One is an intervention to train the therapist and the other intervention is for the therapist to train the patient. So it's like a dual intervention. Now, so we're doing research to go, how do we, how do we train people? So we often think of it's just about, oh, how do we treat a patient? But actually, how do we best take a physiotherapist and, and, and help them shift the way they deliver care to be effective? So we're doing a bunch of research at the moment, um, looking at how best to train people. Uh, and so that will influence um, down the track how we go about training. Uh, and um, there's uh, one of our PhD students at the moment is looking at a is looking to publish a paper. It's essentially kind of looking at what we need, what's the template that you need for training? Because physiotherapists predominantly do weekend workshops. Well, what can you learn in a weekend workshop? You know, actually, it's it's face to face mentoring. It's me watching you treat a patient and giving you point feedback on that case of you sitting down and watching a video of you working with that patient and wondering why they switched off at that point in time and why they never came back to see you. It's, it's, that, it's at that level where we see real change, I think. And that's a huge challenge for us. Um, I think as educators to see um, education through a completely different perspective. So, there's a, there's a knowledge component, which I think is quite easy to teach. Then there's the doing component, and the doing component is about your basic communication skills, utilising motivational techniques. Um, and if someone doesn't have high levels of empathy, it's not going to work. You fundamentally don't give a shit about your patients and you just want to treat them, then you can't do this stuff because it will show... Um, so there are kind of like these prerequisites we think of someone who we could train and then it's like how long does it take to train someone to competence and we think it's not linear we think for some people they get it really quick and they can embed it quite quickly and they they can build on it for others it's a much harder journey um, possibly based on you know their own cognitive flexibility their own fundamental beliefs their own anxieties their own fears around pain um, that they've kind of fostered since they were young, um, their own self-efficacy, I think. Um, uh, you know, the other things that probably influence how fast or whether you can train a, a person to competence around being really effective. And um, the more we look at it, the, the really critical skills appear to be those skills. Um, which can be pretty hard for some people and for others, it's just a natural fit. Great. That goes with the importance of self-reflection for clinicians to see what, what we actually believe 
how that impacts us, our own self-efficacy, our yes. own experiences. And then the, the great thing about your training is it's not a, just a weekend course. So it's looking at no, recorded it, sessions, looking, it's can't looking at be. live yeah. feedback, coaching yeah. and mentoring to get that actual yeah. clinical yeah. change. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is people drift as well. So if you're, if you're not working within an ecosystem that supports that model of care, you'll drift. So there's something about, we think, one of the things that we're seeing in our research is that you need to be, we think we should be training communities. So we should train a group, a cluster, because that, where that's worked, where we've seen it work, is that cluster self-supports, they self-nurture and they self-mentor uh, and then they grow. Where if you train an individual and they go into a, in a, a workplace where there's no support and there's no nurturing and there's no mentoring and they'll get dragged back into this other place. Um, and so, you know, we have to think about um, behavior change for our own ecosystems of where we work. Um, because if there's a, it's, we think it's probably not going to work to just train an individual that goes back into a care setting where they have to treat short appointments. Um, the, the person who might be their boss is looking down their throat going, why aren't you treating this person three times a week? Why aren't they coming back in? You're not seeing them enough. Um, you know, that just doesn't, can't work. And that's why we see a lot of really good people drop out of physiotherapy, I think, because they, they fundamentally realize they can't make it happen in their workplace. You see that happen so often, the constraints in, within someone's Absolutely. own ecosystem. Yeah. And it goes with the value Absolutely. of having mentors and support network. Perhaps yeah. if it it's like, not locally, I, it can be internationally, yeah. globally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I do think that's why these kinds of discussions are really helpful because people go, oh God, I'm not alone. <laughs> and that's a good thing because you can create a community which is bigger than that. But um, I think it's super hard if you're working in a, and, and there's a paper that should be coming out really soon that's highlighted this, um, that when you are not in a community, it's really hard to deliver this kind of care. It's really hard. Uh, no, so kudos to your work and that's a, this is a great discussion. I know with, with CFT, there's been um, some research into more than just the lower back. I think people have yeah. that perception that's just, you know, chronic yeah. low back pain. And I was wondering, yeah. as a as a broad question, is there yeah. is there a place for it in other you know other body parts? Yeah. I hate saying that. I hate, yeah. You know, differentiating the body. Yeah. But yeah. So so why do we choose the back? Because it's the leading cause of disability in the world. It's a disaster, train wreck, basically how back pain's managed in the world. So we kind of thought, well, if we can develop a model for that, then can we then extrapolate that? So we've done. Um, uh, pilot studies around hip pain, um, which we're writing up at the moment, knee pain. We're running a, we've got funding for a pilot study looking at um, more widespread pain, spinal pain, post-trauma, um, and then a study around uh, knee arthritis as well. Um, so we see it as a model here for pain, basically. And personally, if you sat in my room, um, tomorrow you'd see people with foot pain, knee pain, hip pain, back pain, shoulder pain, finger pain, jaw pain, DMJ, like it's pain. And the factors don't look very different. I mean, the functional demands of that body part are unique to that body part. But the, uh, the fundamental underlying drivers of pain and disability don't look very different. You know, when you can unravel the, the story with the person. 
And so we see it as potentially having broad application as a model of care. And it's like, it, I think the important thing here is, you know, people go, well, why did you call it that? It's like, well, we had to call it something. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, and people go, oh, you trademarked it. No, we haven't trademarked it. It was, if we just called it exercise and education, it could be anything. So we had to call it something. And, and we kind of, it wasn't CBT because it wasn't just talking. There was a very strong functional component, which was the doing. So we kind of went, well, let's just call it CFT. <laughs> That's how it kind of happened. And I, and I think for some people, they naturally react to that to go, oh, you're, you know, some exclusive club. It's not what we're about. We're really just about to say, hey, this is a model care that we've developed for physios to help them um, see, have to, to coach people towards independence. It's not the way, it's our way. There are other ways, <laughs> like it's not exclusive, uh, but we think it's got lots of merit it, in its own. It probably doesn't work for everybody. Um, it needs to be worked in conjunction with other healthcare practitioners to optimize its effect, to deal with other health comorbidities and to work with medical people. Um, but to me, it's, better than the other stuff that I was doing. <laughs> it's, it's got the, so, the principles and, and, as well that can be so trans, yeah. easily translated to yeah. many other avenues of yeah. Exactly. And look, we published a paper, um, Ivan Lin was lead, lead a paper about what's best practice last year. And it ticks every single box of what best practice looks like. So it kind of look, my view is if you go, what does best practice look like? then how do you package it? Because I think people go, oh, there are the things that look like best practice, but how do you do it? And it's almost like, well, this is one way you can do practice that kind of ticks all those boxes. We kind of see it like that. And if we were to promote this, this best practice, whether it be CFT or just any kind of nudge towards more of that mm. biopsychosocial person-centered coaching approach, mm. how mm. would you advise us as if we're in a clinical role to nudge our colleagues or those around us in the space to towards yeah. these yeah it's a great question i, I think um look I, I tend to ask questions rather than make statements and it's a if you look at motivational interviewing you know you know your patient self you're dealing with a patient if you ask them a question it'll it kind of results in a different response than if you tell them how it is um, so asking questions is always the best way to create reflection. Um, and you see that through social media as well, where people make a statement and then you get smashed. If you ask a question that opens up this kind of conversation, um, I would ask lots of questions. I would um, encourage uh, doing journal reviews of papers that might test paradigms. So, you know, I don't know if you've read the system, the systematic review that came out around to flex or not to flex, or um, you know, it got absolutely plastered, but it created a lot of conversation, and that's good. Um, and you know, black and white isn't the way the world works. It works in shades of grey, essentially. But um, the other thing is to to encourage colleagues to say, "Hey, I've got a really tough case. Can we do a combined session?" Can we get together and have a, a group of us look at this, listen to this case, spend more time with that case, and um, let's explore what might be going on. I think the other thing that's really cool is um, 
with this kind of opening up of telehealth is that you can do, we encourage this a lot, is where the therapist can do a session with us. Um, so uh, I've done that with people in different states, for example, where you can do a, the therapist is there, their patient is there, and you can do a, a um, examination through Zoom. Um, and that's really empowering for the clinician because it's not like I've lost my patient. They've still got them there. I don't want them. Um, but that creates an opportunity for a whole new way of learning and development, which is kind of like mentoring, but you can do it through, so, through media. You don't have to be in the room to do that. Um, so there are all kinds of opportunities like that that are open up to, I think, which are great. And they foster questioning. The more, more you question, the more you learn. Um, so if you've got a, in a work environment that is open to questioning, then question lots, because that's how I've learned in my career. Awesome. The showing and the asking, not the telling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With these skills in, in motivational interviewing, you mentioned in communication yeah. skills, all these buzzwords mm. of rapport building, trust and therapeutic alliance. Mm. What are some resources that you would recommend mm. for, for clinicians looking to upskill in these areas, behavior change. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we've tried to, um, you know, write a number of articles that are hopefully useful for people and a number of them we've tried to make open access so that they're freely available. Um, there are like psychologists run motivational interview courses and I strongly recommend people go to them. Um, because it's, uh, the, they they can as long as they can adapt it um those skills there are some great books around and resources around motivational interviewing as well which are out there for people um one of the things that we've reflected on we've developed some ebooks um which i don't know if you've seen that there's a translational what's it called um it's a curtain translational framework we can, we can we link wrote. it after yeah. um, and that was really written to go hey what are the really important things you need to consider with your patient these are some of the ways you can ask the questions so that's something that we've created as a resource um 100 of the funds go back into we don't get any of it it goes back into education and research um we're also testing a couple of ebooks that we've we've got integrated video of patients and stuff just kind of um, part of this research project. And that's something that we will um, people give people access to if it works. So we, we, we test stuff before we put it out there rather than just doing something and putting it out there. Um, so those, those are the things that we see are really important as educators that we develop material that actually does work. Um, I don't know if you've seen the back pain quiz that we developed. So it's called, yep, the low back pain quiz, um, or it's called lowbackpaincommunication.com is what it's called. Yeah, uh, and great, we great developed examples. that. We've also, yeah, so we developed that as a quiz for people to go, and it's free, available um, for people to go, hey, this is, these are common questions that people of pain ask. This is a common way that people are responded to. This is another way. And here's the evidence why this way is not so good and this way might be really helpful. So we're also developing those around the knee and the hip for other body regions for arthritis, for example. 
Um, and we're going to test them. So we've got a research project this year that's going to test to see whether we can shift people's beliefs through running quizzes because we think they're a bit more engaging and appealing for students um, than reading dry text. So we're quite interested in different modes of delivery um, for learning. And there's a whole world opening up around that at the moment, which we're kind of pretty pretty interested in being part of. Awesome. So and I think it will evolve more and more. And really love as well the the video examples of your consultations, the the yeah, right. on, on YouTube or in in various websites yeah. out there. That's yeah. really good to show examples of of it in action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. The um I wanted to end with the final question, Pete, with this pandemic there is a lot of movement over to telehealth you mentioned mm. some of the, the the ways that a patient can palpate themselves and can can you mm. can still use a lot of the techniques of touch mm. so would you yeah. like to end but with also any- behavioral experiments as well yeah. so you know i've since in the last few weeks i've done purely telehealth i've had i had one guy who was you know was told his ankle was disintegrated and he need to have an ankle fusion so, you know, I've got him back moving his ankle and strengthening his ankle and doing functional, you know, getting going and getting on his bike and getting back to walking across a couple of sessions. Um, another lady who was, you know, thought her neck was crumbling and I've taught her to, you know, take her through a whole process of body relaxation and movement and facilitation and breathing techniques all through video. Uh, another lady who, um, uh, who was uh, told she needed urgent spinal surgery with radiculopathy and she had mild neurological deficit and you know i could coach her through video to relax her body get moving bend and lift and lunge and get going and you know she's changed hugely within a short period of time and has now cancelled the surgery so um you could do a neurological an assisted neurological investigate and examination not reflexes but certainly power and sensation through direct being directed in fact there was a paper that just came out um, uh, in JOSPT looking at uh, hip pain and looking to see how reliable it is to do patient-directed hip examination versus therapists doing it just as reliable. So um, I think we can take great confidence that um, we can do heaps and heaps of stuff that actually may be quite good for the patient because it puts them even more in control than what we would do in a normal consultation. uh, where it doesn't work well is where the person's got no confidence with technology, uh, where they might be older or they've got really crappy connection and it's falling out. It creates a lot of distress for them. So I've had a couple of sessions which have been turned to custard um, because just because we just haven't, the technology just hasn't worked or they've turned the bloody thing upside down or, the, you know, the, yeah, it, they're just Selfie not versus, confident yeah. with the techno- yeah, technology. So... Um, where we can, an older person, we've had a family member there who can direct the camera or whatever, that works really well. So I think we've done a lot, of, we've learned a lot in a really short period of time to go, and there are a lot of other good people who've done work around telehealth. Um, you know, who could tell you a lot more about it. We've kind of just been thrown in the deep end and had to swim, um, and we've kind of worked out very quickly what, what does and doesn't work, but I've been really heartened and I've, uh, we've asked people as well, like, how did you rate it? And the common theme is, yeah, that's like 80 90%. As good, I'm going, what's not as good? as Oh, well, it's just a little bit clunky with the video and stuff like that. And 
but actually it's way safer. It's way more convenient. I don't have to wait and it's in the comfort of my home and safety of my home. That's a really cool thing for people who can't access care and they're stuck in a rural or remote area because it, they couldn't get it anyway. So, it's um, going to be here to stay. Yeah. Hope so. I really, and what I really hope is that the funding for it will remain. Um, that's my that's my fear is actually the funding the funders go okay you can go face to face we're stopping that now that would be my fear is that that happens but um, we've got a couple of research projects now that are going to look at <coughs> using telehealth as a means of delivering care so we want to collect some data and um, there are other groups like Kim Benil's group in Melbourne has done some great work in that space they've done lots of work in that space around um, NeoA. So there's some good evidence out there. I think Christian Barton's doing some work around GLAD delivering it via um, telehealth as well. So hopefully there'll be enough impetus and research coming through to actually say, hey, this is a mode of delivery we need to offer as an option. And I wonder how the world of healthcare will change after that. If we know that we can get the same results, same delivery of high value care, yeah, or just maybe a video consultation, what does that tell or us? May, or maybe even better. <laughs> yeah. That would be a cool study. <laughs> it would be. Pete, it's been an amazing yeah. discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. If our listeners are, are keen to find out more about your future projects, endeavors, where can we find yeah. you? Um, so I do, um, I am on Twitter. So uh, Pete O'Sullivan PT. I kind of post stuff and I post other people's stuff that I think is really cool. I ask the odd question. Um, we run a website called Pain Ed, although we're a little bit intermittent around how much we post on that because we're so busy, but we tend to, we, we're, that's something we're going to refocus. Um, we're putting more and more uh, info up on our website, which is Body Logic Physiotherapy. Um, we're trying to develop a resource there for people, uh, for people in pain, but also for physios as well. Um, so they're kind of our main areas. Awesome. Pete, keep up the amazing work. You're an inspiration to, to many out there. And until next time. Good on you. Thank you, Daniel. Cheers.